This is a Goosebumps episode. We had the privilege of talking with Tristan Harris, who was named to Time Magazine's 100 Next Leaders Shaping the Future and the creator of the wildly successful documentary, The Social Dilemma. Tristan is our canary in the coal mine and a beacon of hope. In this crucial episode, we will talk with Tristan about the attention economy, the metaverse and toxic business models, attention as a superpower in life and work, the rise of virtualized friendship, love, and porn, and how the Web3 community has the potential to focus on intention versus attention while incentivizing the best of humanity, society, and democracy. This is so good, and we can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, simplifying today's massive disruptions to work, skills, purpose, and what it means to be human with honest conversation, actionable insight, and a sense of humor. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your humble hosts. Hey, everyone. Nate and I are thrilled to have Tristan Harris on the Disrupted Workforce today. Tristan, you were the first whistleblower on social media, opening the door to Francis Hagen and others. Way back in April 2017, you appeared on 60 Minutes, mainstreaming these powerful ideas of how big tech companies like Google, Facebook, Snap, and others use persuasive technology for a modern day form of brain hacking, engaging our minds like slot machines in Las Vegas, and moreover, how profitable it was and continues to be for big tech to engage in these practices with little to no regulation, wielding dangerous power over our ability to make sense of the world. Since then, and you've got a long bio here because you've been a very busy guy, <laughs> been named to Time Magazine's 100 Next Leaders Shaping the Future, Rolling Stone Magazine's 25 People Shaping the World, your co-founder and president of the Center for Humane Technology, which is catalyzing a comprehensive shift toward humane technology that operates for the common good, and your co-host of Your Undivided Attention, a top 10 ranked technology podcast exploring how social media's race for attention is destabilizing society and the vital insights we need to envision solutions. Tristan, you are also the primary subject of the acclaimed Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which we hope all of our listeners have seen. It's amazing, and it unveiled the hidden machinations behind social media, reaching an estimated 100 million people worldwide, streaming in 190 countries in 30 languages. And in that film, you called the smartphone a digital pacifier for uncomfortable feelings. And I think that is just brilliant. In your efforts to drive change, you've briefed heads of state, technology company CEOs, and members of the U.S. Congress, having mobilized millions of people through mainstream media campaigns. Personally, you know, for Nate and I, having you on this podcast is really cool. I quoted some of your work in my first article before we launched The Disrupted Workforce, which was a solution for loneliness in the age of AI. I was doing a ton of research on this space, thinking about how I wanted to help people unglue themselves from their devices, but also improve my own digital behaviors and think about strategically what screen time looks like for my son, who's now six years old. So with all that, Let's dive in. Um, now, Tristan, you wrote an article for the New York Times back in December 2019 called Our Brains Are No Match for Our Technology. And you quoted Harvard professor Edward O. Wilson, who said, 
The real problem of humanity is the following. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Wow. Now, three years later, we're even further down that path, and I think it's the perfect segue to talk about what everybody seems to be talking about today, which is the metaverse. And I thought, you know, perhaps the best way to start is through the lens of the work that you're doing, what you see, what you're seeing and where you sit. What is what does the metaverse mean to you? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, in a way, um, technology companies for a long time with the attention economy, a lot of, you know, thank you, by the way, for having me on. And it's great to, great to be with both of you. And that was a really generous introduction. There's so much that's happened over the last few years. It's interesting to hear it recapped. Um, and, and with saying that, um, a lot of my work started with a study of the attention economy, which is that um, there is a finite supply of human attention out there. And that will create, whether we like it or not, a zero-sum competition for who's going to get that attention. You know, is it going to be Netflix? Is it going to be YouTube? Is it going to be Twitter? Is it going to be TikTok? Is it going to be your family? Is it going to be your dog? Is it going to be your sister? Uh, and that's where um, the initial work came from. Um, and specifically, the business model of major, you know, market cap north of five hundred billion dollar technology companies being based on that race for attention means that you have some fairly powerful actors. I mean, if your sister wants your attention through text messaging, she's competing with a $500 billion behemoth who has supercomputers pointed at your brain to try to harvest that attention. So now when you go to the question of the metaverse that you asked me, where my mind goes when you ask me that question is that technology companies have been in a race to create the metaverse for much longer than they've called it the metaverse because the metaverse is really the race to virtualize our experiences and create an entire virtual world in which we feel that our identity our avatar exists in that world our virtual goods exist in that world our attention how we interact with other people exists in that world and um you know so i when i think about that um i i think that in a way this is nothing new this was kind of the plan all along which is Instagram was creating the Instagram verse, you know, prior to there was there being a full VR environment. Um, the power of a VR environment is that now, you know, all of your senses are immersed, obviously, in, in, in being defined in, in that way, as opposed to just my identity, my social pressure, my social communications. And so if you think about the number of um, knobs that I have as a persuasive technologist, a lot of the foundation of our work is also based on my background at Stanford in this lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab. And um, in general, the discipline of persuasive technology, which is how do I get access to these lower level levers of the human mind so I can influence more aspects of your experience? Well, if I can influence your social communications, if I can influence your avatar, your identity, your self-image with beautification filters, if I can access you know, the dopamine sort of slot machine you know, pieces of your mind, um, those are more knobs that I have access to. And the more knobs I have access to, the more I can control your experience. Well, metaverse is just the increasing extension of even more of those knobs where I get higher bit rate, higher immersion, et cetera. But one of the things that's alarming about this is there's been problems with virtualizing our experiences and making us more divorced from the physical world and from our physical relationships for a long time. And in fact, you know, a lot of people who saw the social dilemma and in general have you know, young people that they know who are immersed in technology are really concerned about what's happening with young people. And the social dilemma profiled how high depressive symptoms for teenagers, specifically teenage girls, get kind of the worst of it, but it really affects all teenagers in different ways. That the mental health problems and also teen suicides 
um, go up like an elbow after about 2011. So this is really interesting. So you have depressive symptoms that are actually going down for a little while. You get teen suicides that are going down for a little while. I think it's, um, you know, the early 2000s to 2009, 2010, 2011. But what happens in 2009, 2010, 2011 is you get this elbow curve and it starts going up. And the reason I'm pointing to this is what happened in 2010, 2011. We didn't get social media where we didn't have social media in 2010, 2011. We already had Instagram. We already had um, Facebook. We already had Twitter. What changed was the fact that it went mobile. This is really interesting, right? You get the combination of Instagram and being immersed on a mobile phone. So now with that, what I guess what I'm trying to get at there is that's kind of when the metaverse begins, because now in, instead of Instagram being something that I use on a, a desktop product or Facebook, I, something I use on a desktop in which it's not my 24 seven reality constructing infrastructure, but when suddenly social media becomes uh, on the mobile phone and I'm using it to check, you know, my, it's my way of relating in the world. It's my way of accessing customers. If I'm a small business, when it becomes the primary way that I define my reality, which it starts to do uh, after 2011, that's when we see the mental health symptoms of kids show up. And I think that's a really important fact, which is that it's so easy to virtualize our experience in a way that causes this really, really significant consequence. That's, that's bad. And I think that speaks to the power and the danger of virtualizing people's experiences, that if you don't get that right, because you have that much power of dominating people's experience, um, it, you can cause real, uh, real harm. That's really well said. And, and I think one of the things that you and uh, your colleague, Daniel Schmachtenberger, have been talking about is this idea of how powerful it is because of AI um, and because of our inability to understand what is real and versus what is fake on social media, that that becomes in my mind, and I, I wonder if you would agree, um, exponentially more dangerous in a in a in an XR or you know in a metaverse world where you're completely immersed and you know you don't know if the the person that you're talking to is it a real human being or is it an AI? I mean, things can get really really blurry in that sense. I if if you could speak a little bit to that through the lens of the metaverse. And I, and again, what we're talking about is another leap in technology. You pointed mm -hmm. to the mobile phone. Now we're talking about the rise of the virtual headset. And what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's a few things there. Um, what you're bringing to mind is um, my co-founder, Aza Raskin, whose, whose father actually invented the Macintosh project at Apple, uh, Jeff Raskin. He's the, my co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. And he often uses this phrase that uh, as technology progresses, reality will get more virtual mm. um, because um, there's an incentive and it's much cheaper to virtualize our reality than to actually have to do things with physical atoms and have to move, move around. And friends who are physical in the physical world are much harder to access and not always available. But what if I could create virtual friends, virtual chatbots? Uh, in China, there was a chatbot called Chowice. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's a very popular chatbot, has hundreds of millions of users. And I think something like 10 to 15% of uh, young people who ha have this chatbot have said, I love you to their chatbot. Wow. And, and it becomes their primary relationship of support because when you're sitting there by yourself, you can't leave your home and you want friends, but your friends aren't always available. In fact, they're all busy kind of getting sucked into their rabbit holes on social media. And as we increase the number of friends we have, we spreads ourselves more thin. So we can't respond to all those messages from all those people. And, um, 
So people then, if you compare a real person's availability to a chatbot's availability, the chatbot's going to outcompete eventually as it gets better and better with things like GPT-3. For audience members that you have who, who may not know, GPT-3 is the new technology that allows you to basically synthesize text that passes the Turing test, meaning text that will make you believe that it was generated by a human, even though it's generated by machines. So you can have these long-form conversations with a bot that actually feel indistinguishable or better than human. And um, that is going to be a major application that emerges. And so as, as this progresses, we're going to have, you know, virtu you have virtual romantic partners. There's already these sort of sex bots where you can basically have, and it's one of the biggest classic, you know, as you get a new technology, what is the, the first movie option? Her. The movie Her. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That. Yeah. And, and, and classically as any new technology invents, I think, you know, invented, um, whether it was uh, Google search, you know, one of the biggest first use cases was porn, you know, when it's uh, live streaming video, one of the biggest first use cases was porn. And then when you get virtual reality, one of the biggest first use cases is going to be uh, sex and porn. Right. And um, so I think the, the temptation to virtualize our lovers, to virtualize sex, to virtualize relationships, to virtualize friendship, um, that is a cheaper and more efficient way for people's needs to be quote unquote met, but it's not really going to meet their needs. Right. And it's going to, and so we have to get into that question. I mean, if I say that out loud, if you just notice your reaction, does that feel like a good world that you want to live in? Like just for, for listeners, right? The, the fundamentally, the reason why we're talking to you today is because we're concerned and it's to separate two things. It's not the concern with innovation. It's not the concern with technology. Those things are amazing and are radically reshaping the human experience in amazing ways. At the same time, there's the shadow side of it. If, if you sort of lose track of your reality and you lose track of your identity wrapped up inside of this digital world, then who are you and who are we and what have we become? You know, that's a concerning conversation, which is why, you know, we're here and why you're doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, completely. Um, well, and there was a second thing that you'd said uh, a second ago, Alex, which was on the E.O. Wilson quote. Um, that the fundamental problem of humanity is we have um, you know, paleolithic emotions or brains. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have ancient brains that were crafted on the savannah. We have um, medieval institutions that come from the 18th, 19th you know, century. And then we have accelerating godlike technology from the 21st century. So what happens when your steering wheel um, is built for an 18th century world, meaning your institutions are steering, but you're building technology or cars that are going, you know, orders of magnitude faster than your institutions can steer or appraise of what's happening. And as Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, my colleague who you uh, quoted, uh, has said, you can't have the power of gods without the live, love, wisdom, and prudence of gods. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, like, imagine that I democratize Zeus-like powers in everyone's hands. So now you're walking around with the capacity to control things at the scale of Zeus, but you don't know that. You don't I, have I would wisdom. like that better than having a set of <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, it depends on probably what, what Zeus powers we're, we're talking about. Um, but, but, you know, a metaphor that I've used is imagine you're Zeus and you bump your elbow, but you're no, you don't think that you're Zeus. So when you bump your elbow, you actually just scorched half of earth with a lightning bolt. Right. Mm. And, and because you don't, you, you can't, you have more power than your self appraising of your capacity, which means that in the, in a blind spot, cause all, all of us have blind spots, but if you're a God with blind spots, then in that blind spot, you can do horrible, you know, massive damage. Right. And you can do it exponentially bigger, exponentially faster and at larger scope. So even though that's a metaphor, instead of Zeus actually scorching earth with, uh, 
his godlike powers. We have Zuckerberg, who is effectively a god of human consequences, right? He's created this brain implant and these services collectively represent kind of a, a psychological brain implant in the total civilizational brain of humanity. And it rewires the communication patterns between people. It rewires conditions and patterns, new patterns of human behavior. Um, and when he created that brain implant and he created WhatsApp and Brazil, and there's sort of these sharing networks, well, it actually led to a, a total um, switch of the electoral outcome where you got Jair Bolsonaro elected in Brazil. And Jair Bolsonaro is sort of a populist um, leader who actually said, we're, we don't care about the Amazon. We're going to just like maximize the uh, deforestation in the, in the Amazon. We're going to have these policies that are just pro, pro the economy and anti-Amazon. So now this metaphor of Zeus having the power of gods and scorching earth by accident, well, Zuckerberg had the power of gods, created these services that then actually caused an electoral outcome that wasn't the native will of the people. That, that election was like 90% misinformation in some surveys that were done prior to that result. And there's a bunch of good research on this that I can point listeners to. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just trying to make this concrete that in this case, you, you do this thing you think is positive for the world, which is you create these ability for people to share with each other. But it wasn't that I can message one person on WhatsApp. It was these viral sharing networks where one person could message to thousands of people and then instant reshare to another thousands of people. And I think virality, we're going to look back on and say that was an exponential technology. That was actually a power of gods. Because previously, you know, the number of people who could access a million followers online, a million listeners, a million audience members were only TV stations or radio stations. But now you have 15 year olds who are broadcasting to audiences that were bigger than maybe some early years of MTV or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. And there's no responsibility or accountability for that. So I think the overall trend is that we're democratizing godlike powers, whether they're exponential broadcasting powers or VR powers or, um, you know, influence powers, but we, we haven't again, made sure that we couple that with the rights and responsibilities of, of, of the wisdom and awareness that we need to have to wield them. That's so well said. That's really, really well said. Um, you know, one of the things that, that has also come up about the metaverse is a lot of folks have said, look, this has been, this has been in the works for a long time. We've been hearing about XR and VR for a long time. Is this really the moment? Um, you know, Scott Galloway, who we're, we're, we're friendly with called it, uh, you know, a flaming bag of shit recently in his blog. You have the Salesforce Super Bowl commercial with Matt McConaughey saying, let's focus on our world, kind of poking fun at the companies that are doing this. On the other side, you see, you know, Microsoft investing $69 billion in Activision Blizzard. Uh, you see Epic Games just going even bigger and, and, and bring even more scale to Fortnite. Travis Scott holding a virtual concert in there with unbelievable engagement numbers. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's, there's all these applications that people are looking for for work, you know, whether it be virtual, virtual meetings, enhancing that experience, uh, various ways to present using you know, 3D technologies, that there, there could be some benefits. Um, so you've got the scary side and then you've got the promise of, hey, we're all working from home anyway. Isn't this going to be much better? We're going to have a water cool cooler like conversation. We're going to wear, you know, cool avatars. We're not going to be in our pajamas in front of a Zoom camera or, you know, dress shirt and pajamas down low, whatever people are doing nowadays. And the, the point is, I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, if this is imminent, if there are going to be people who are forced to embrace it for work. Is there a need then to to upskill or reskill here, and what does that look like in terms of doing it in a 
responsible way, in a thoughtful way, in a in a in a humane way. Um, any insights you have on that on that front, I think, would be really really helpful to our audience. Uh, each one of these questions goes goes very deep. So one thing to note about just what's driving these forces, I think Zuckerberg has said that they're going to be hiring more than 10,000 engineers to work on the metaverse and hiring those engineers in, in Europe. These companies are making massive bets, as you've just outlined, you know, Microsoft making the Blizzard Activision um, acquisition um, uh, and Zuckerberg hiring 10,000 engineers in, in Europe. Why are they making those bets? Well, let's notice that there's an arms race, right? So let's say that we actually collectively had concerns. Let's say that Zuckerberg himself thought the metaverse might not even be a good idea, like that it was actually maybe bad for people or something like that. Let's just like imagine for a second that maybe he even had that thought. If the future of his company and his stock price, and let, we actually know, for example, that his user, his user numbers and his usage numbers are tapping out for the first right. time in history. Um, I think their, their active user numbers went down. Uh, from 1.93 billion or to 1.91 billion or something like that. Um, and we can talk more about that later. Their stock prices dropped dramatically. So he's feeling the pressure, right? And there's a rivalrous dynamic where let's say Apple, you know, says, hey, we think that there might be some major problems with going in the direction of the metaverse and creating a virtual world of the future. Is that really the future that humanity wants to live in? When we get to the year 2100 for century 22, you know, is that the future that we're all just living inside of these VR headsets all day long? So we have to ask questions like, is that the future that we want? Well, even if that, let's say, wasn't the future that we want, because it's an arms race, if I don't do it, the other guy will, and my billion, my next you know, trillion dollar market cap is going to come from colonizing the metaverse space, then everybody feels like they have to do it and then do it as responsibly as they can. And so you get this arms race for everyone going for it. And then they have to compete for who can make the most attractive, seductive uh, metaverse. And that's what we call that race to the bottom of the brainstem. So again, back to the attention economy, we're competing to suck people into um, those places for as many hours, minutes as, as possible and create the loyalty mechanisms and the investment mechanisms where you've bought all of your commerce inside of our metaverse. You have to stay with locked into you know that, that metaverse platform. So I say that because that's important to recognize, I think, the game mechanics that are at play, that um, even if there were problems that people are having forcing to themselves to invest in it because they don't want to be losing out on that. There's a second reason that Zuckerberg is interested in it, which is that right now, Facebook's destiny is really controlled by Apple and the App Store uh, and Android, because essentially they don't get a direct access to their users except directly on the website. On the mobile phones, they actually have to go through Apple's platform or Android's platform, which means that if Apple or Android were to ever make it harder for them to reach customers or make those privacy protecting features, which Apple added, by the way, which are reducing actively right now Facebook's revenue by $10 billion a year, that's not that that that's harmful to obviously their prospects. They're not in, independent and sovereign. So one of the main reasons that everyone wants to own the metaverse is because they want a direct relationship for their new distribution channel of, of, of content and not have to go through someone else. Um, so let's see. And then you were, you were asking a second thing there. Um, I, I just wanted to lay out the game mechanics first. Can you repeat the, the last bit that you were saying? Sure, sure. This is really more about what, are the, what is the need for reskilling or upskilling for the workforce? Yeah, well, I mean, with, with with a lens on humanity, how did you do this in a responsible way? How do you operate in the, in the metaverse in in a skilled and responsible way? Yeah, well, I I mean, um, 
speaking very humbly, I, I have not spent my career working on um, virtual reality design patterns and understanding what makes those environments, um, you know, the ergonomics of staying in that experience for hours a day and not feeling sick or nauseous, for example. There are great people like Jeremy Balenson at Stanford and the virtual reality lab there who've been literally spent their whole career and decades uh, studying these kinds of questions and looking at many positive use cases for, like you've said, how virtual reality can help people feel co-presence in the workplace and can enable um, more empathy. They have these great experiments where people um, take on the identity of a minority and are walking around in the neighborhood or they walk around, they walk, they walk in a mirror or they look in a mirror and they see themselves as a different person of color or something like that if they're white. And um, in seeing that, you can actually measure that they're, and they're treated differently in that environment. There's someone who walks in and like says something to them kind of as if they were a person of color, have some experience, or as if they're someone of a different gender. And those experiences in VR are much more persuasive if you measure it on a scale of persuasiveness of the technology. than if you saw a video about gender or person of color or marginalization or something like that. So it's important to recognize, again, the persuasiveness of, of those environments can be used in ways that are pro-social, that are increasing empathy, that are helping workforces be better. I'm personally not an expert on exactly what those design patterns would be. What I would want to be careful of is you can't have a virtual reality built on top of a physical reality and not have the virtual reality be trying to protect that which it depends upon, which is a working physical reality. And in a way, you can see the things that are going wrong right now with social media, as social media was built by tech, you know, companies that are built on top of physical democracies. But when they virtualized those democracies, they weren't trying to protect the functioning of that physical democracy underneath. They just right. wanted to virtualize it. And yep. so you can just think of it as an abstract philosophical principle. When you build a system that depends on another system, but it debases the system upon which it depends. That's not going to be a viable system. So I think, you know, we are human beings for better or worse as part of the paleolithic emotions equation. We also have paleolithic bodies, right? And it turns out human beings need touch. We need contact. We need eye contact. We need presence. We need connection. We need a feeling of camaraderie. We need joy. We need creativity. And if we don't get really in touch with holding a mirror back at ourselves, what our genuine needs are and really understand, you know, that, that irking feeling when we were describing that VR future and everything, and it's sort of like, it doesn't feel like it's exactly the future we'd want to live in. It doesn't yeah. feel humane. Everyone has that intuition. It's important to tune into that. What is that feeling in, in reference to? And I think it's these deeper um, truths about how human beings work and what our nature is. And I think that we have to make sure we're designing technology to be symbiotic to the full expression of those physical, real human needs. We're going to need real experiences. I don't, yeah. I don't believe you can hollow us out into a virtual world. I think that we're moving into a world where people are going to start to pay a great deal of money for physical experiences. Analog experiences actually unplug me from the matrix so that I can maybe wake up again and be out of the noise for a minute so that I can be a human again. And when you talk, Tristan, it makes me think of balancing the equation. You've been doing a lot of work on systems thinking and balancing the equation. One of the things you've said repeatedly with all of your bodies of work is we're dealing with godlike powers. It, we're, we're not set up to win this battle. So I'm just interested from that perspective of how does the average person have a shot of balancing this equation or even possibly winning the battle? So yeah, what does the average person do when hearing that trillion dollar companies are you know, plowing money into a virtual future of humanity 
Um, not even because necessarily they believe as the humans that are making those buying and acquisition billion dollar decisions, that that's a good thing, but because it's an arms race and if they don't, the other guy will. So how does the individual who's then saying, okay, that's the future that's being plowed by these trillion dollar, you know, terraformers of human realities that are sitting in front of me. And I'm just a human that has to go to work every day. But what if the definition of work suddenly transforms its meaning into I have to live in that terraform virtual reality that those trillion dollar companies created. What am I to do in that environment? Yeah. Well, first, I think that we need to just, um, you know, democracies theoretically respond to uh, people's needs and the will of the people. And if there is popular understanding and views, that is a creepy reality that we don't necessarily want in its full expression. We don't want a fully dominated virtual world to be our future. I. I don't have stats on this, but when I saw the metaverse be announced, I most people I know, and I, I'm definitely in a bubble, but I think that when you looked around at the broader public's understanding and, and, and feeling about it, I think a lot of people felt really uneasy about that being announced. And I think that's, that's a good thing. It shows that there's already some innate skepticism, some innate um, concerns about you know, what that future would look like, especially run by you know, a company um, like Facebook that, that has not demonstrated good faith uh, ability to design things in a way that is good for humanity. But I would be concerned about it even if Apple was making it or Microsoft as well, just to sort of name my own concerns. So I think the first thing is that if there's a popular political will that says, hey, this needs to be designed in a very humane way for limited use. It's not for a world we want to live in. It's a world we need to be able to use consciously for certain key applications where VR is better than the alternative. You know, maybe it's better for certain kinds of empathy or better for certain kinds of games specifically, but not for living my entire life in that world. Um, so I think that's- so, so the average person would have to have the conscious awareness of these tools are good for X, Y, and Z, but in general, yeah. I have to keep them in that box or I can lose myself in them. Right. And I think, you know, I don't know if any, I think I remember when I was a kid, I probably had a StarCraft addiction, like many people who would probably be my age. Uh, and I used StarCraft, uh, the game, you know, for probably more hours than I would have liked. Uh, and, you know, you realize at some point kind of where these things fit into your life, right? Um, and, you know, I'm, I think if we have, so this kind of goes back to the power of God's wisdom of God's thing. So if you're a God, if you have the power of God's to completely virtualize your experience, but you don't have the wisdom of God's, meaning you're just subject to social pressure. So if everybody else is also just virtualizing their experience and getting lost in the, in the ether, um, we have to have the wisdom to be able to self-contain um, our, our use of these things. Now, on the other side of that equation, I think what you're referencing is what do you do when there's a trillion dollars of market cap pointed at point keeping you in that direction? And yeah. Facebook starts buying off all chance. the retail stores. Right. <laughs> and if they change the definition of social participation, I mean, this is the same thing. Look, people saw the social dilemma and they said Instagram is a huge problem. But, um, you know, and I, maybe I don't like social media. I don't want to live there. But like if you're a social, if a small, medium sized business or a teenager and the means of social participation are that you hang out in those chat groups on or the messaging groups or the you know online groups uh, in those apps and you can't communicate with your friends or find out about social opportunities or sexual opportunities except by using those things that's what gets dangerous is when you take over the definition of what it means to participate socially and and that's where i think we have to actually have limits to that where people need to have ways of participating or working that don't involve full immersion in these services. And that's the problem we face right now with the existing social media companies is that we could have 90% of people agree that the business models that are there are toxic and not good for society or democracy or mental health. But right now they don't have another choice. I talked to politicians 
who say, you know, I agree with everything you said, Tristan, but I don't know how I'm going to get elected if I don't use the political ads. Right. And it's the only way I can reach people. So again, it comes back to if they own the means of social participation, then, then we're kind of screwed. And so that's why I think we have to have a balance. And just like, you know, there's a great book um, by Kate Rallworth called Donut Economics, which is our, our economic system has to live within the planetary bio, uh, boundaries of the biosphere. If you are over extracting beyond the regenerative and you know depletion capacities of the biosphere, um, that's going to break that system at some point. And I think that just like there's a biosphere, and it's not like uh, we're saying don't you know uh, deforest and get trees and turn trees into two by fours. Let's do that, but let's do that within the regenerative capacities of what you know we need the Earth to do as a regenerative system. Right. Similarly, we're not saying let's not virtualize our experiences, but let's not virtualize to the degree that we've alienated people from themselves and from their ability to stay connected as human beings. We know that when people are more isolated, one of the best predictors of whether you'll believe in a conspiracy theory is whether you already believe in one conspiracy theory. And it's never been easier to isolate people, which is also yes. a predictor of your sort of susceptibility to conspiracies. Um, and the more you just, you, you play that again, it's just, it, it gets us away from ourselves. So I, anyway, I think that that's, that's one of the areas where we have to respect the kind of human societal boundaries that, that make society function and then stay within those boundaries. And we can virtualize on top, but not, not fully. Yeah. And then just to your point on early indicators, we just ran the largest experiment in the history of the world to virtualize the world, to run our businesses and our lives online. Yeah. And, and a lot of the feedback that's coming back personally and just talking to people, I've been experiencing it. And then you see it all over the media is no one likes to be trapped in Zoom world all day long. Right. right? It's, it's not a thing. So that's yeah. a big indicator for the, the VR kind of meta side of things. Yeah, completely. And, you know, it's, we can have, it's, it, everything has, has trade-offs. So we, we like the fact that it grants us this ability to stay at home and maybe be closer with our families and have, you know, the remote work possibility, right? <laughs> but, but in balance, right? And so it's interesting when we have these hybrid approaches where you have companies who have a partial, you know, being in the office and then partially working from home and then just having a balanced life and a balanced day. And I think that balanced um, uh, notion is what we need also with an economy. We need an economy that's balanced with the biosphere, not an economy that's over tilts us away from planetary into planetary overshoot and gives us climate change in the same way that if we have attention economies that are too virtualized as opposed to physicalized, they can, you know, overshoot us into the human downgrading world of addicted, distracted, polarized, narcissistic, and misinformed. Those are all adjectives of when you over extract into the virtual world. Yeah. Um, so on, on the note of balance, it would seem that based on everything that we were talking about and everything that you know, Nate and I have done in, in our own research, that in the age of distraction, attention is definitely a superpower today. And I know you just recently spoke to Johan Hari about his new book that is really focused on how he found his own struggle and journey with trying to reclaim attention and focus and really uncovered the power of flow states. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that conversation that you had with him. You know, how did that, what did you guys share? What was insightful or impactful for you in those conversations? And, and how do people harness uh, in your own opinion, the power of attention today. Yeah, well, Johan is a wonderful uh, author and wrote several great books, Chasing the Scream, Lost Connections. Uh, we had him on our podcast, which uh, people should check out, called Your Undivided Attention. Um, and he, uh, his recent book called Stolen Focus, um, was which 
eventually largely based on our work on the attention economy. And he calls it, I think, the attention crisis, um, you know, which is just that as these actors compete for uh, getting more and more of our attention, it, you know, it, there's a cost to that, which is that where are we able to focus on or have the flow states that are what enable human thriving and for creativity? Like, can we build rockets to the moon? Can we make even the Peter Thiel vision of the Jetsons happen when everybody is constantly addicted, distracted, polarized, and misinformed? You know, we, we can't do that. So, you know, it, it comes back to the attention economy, which is that, um, you know, growing up as a kid, technology doesn't have to be this attention sucking force. You know, I was an optimist and used the Macintosh growing up as a kid and it was a creative tool, right? I used Photoshop. I made video games. I could literally like program my own, you know, games or educational software. I made educational software. We, we would like to play those if you could send them. Great. <laughs> these were, uh, wait, these are definitely wouldn't run on any modern computer. I think many of them are based on HyperCard, which is a emulator. original. Yeah, exactly. Take <laughs> one of the emulators out. Um, but you know, those things require um, creative and long form uses of attention. You have to be focused for long periods of time. And when you used Photoshop in the 1990s, if I clicked on the paint tool, it didn't send a notification to 200 friends saying, Tristan clicked on the paint tool. Do you want to comment on him using the paint tool? Right. right? And that speaks to the key difference of the environment that we can call pro-technology and humane technology, where it was about being ergonomic to human expression and human creativity and helping us to the new post-attention economy world where all of these applications actually want to invent notifications and social pressure and social drama that keeps the drama internet connected. Like right now we live in the drama hyperlinked internet. So every piece of drama, everything that everyone ever does is hyperlinked to the next piece of drama. So the, you know, the thing I say that gets a bunch of comments and people get angry, then links to someone, then, you know, shit posting on top of that and citing it and then creating another drama link. And so it's Spiral. never been easier to yeah. navigate the drama internet. Yeah. And so instead of creating the like 1990s ideal of, you know, this like information superhighway that educates everyone, just like we thought we'd do with television, it turned in because of that incentive for the attention economy to entertain, to dramatize, to engage, to inflame. And the problem is we just can't survive that. So how do you hold your attention amidst that ecosystem? I think, you know, the obvious things of turn off all notifications. Um, if you can delete all applications that um, actually want your attention, whose business model is wanting your attention. Um, notice that if you use FaceTime, uh, it doesn't have fluttering, laughing emojis and thumbs up like flying across the screen all the time. Why is that? Because Apple FaceTime is not built on a business model of sucking your attention out. It doesn't notify you and tell you there's 20 people talking right now. Do you want to comment on it? Right. And so I was, again, I was impressed that Apple now has a focus mode for text messages, notify people that you're in your focus mode. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is a step forward. And actually, I, that's, I, a, yeah. that's a great example, actually. And not to um, toot my own horn a bit, but that that was I, I actually um, had designed that exact interface in a 2013 TED talk um, about distraction. Yeah, and Apple finally implemented the exact design, which is that you could go into a focus mode. Um, knowing though that the person, if it's really important, can keep escalating it if it's genuinely worth your attention, because it'll tell the other person, hey, um, you know, this person's focused right now. So if you send them this message, they're not going to see it. But if you want to, you can consciously escalate it. So you're flipping the default set setting from every message I send is an immediate, like, you know, shove me, you know, shove a message into my brain and immediately notify me 
to default, it holds it behind a wall, but you can still consciously move it across that wall. Nate, and those are Nate examples really of creating... been exploiting the the escalation function on my phone recently. So we know right. about that. Yeah. Well, that is one of the challenges, right? Is that as we move forward in the attention economy distracted world, we become so used to instant access yes. that even when these barriers exist, we're like, get out of my way. I still want to escalate it to this person's attention. Yes. And I think that speaks to again the cultural norm shifting. That as the world keeps interrupting each other more and more, we, we shift to a norm where we expect that as the, as the norm. It's really upsetting to me because I concluded a while ago that our devices are really teaching us to behave and act more like them. Like we are, we are you know, operating or expected to operate in the same way that software operates in our relationships and in our responses. And it, it doesn't give us time to be, to be careful, to be human beings, to be focused. You know, we are just these just balls of reactivity now. And I, and I think it's really, really upsetting and, and, uh, diminishing, you know, creative human output and, and diminishing the quality of, of, of the very fiber of all of our relationships. Maybe well, to that point though, um, yeah. Alex and Tristan is, uh, nudge is this concept in the coaching world. Coaching's going online. Uh, it used to be reserved for executives often with performance issues. And now it's turning into everybody needs coaching. And the concept behind it is to nudge the human, to do these small behaviors more often. And I think just on that's kind of what you're saying in the design of your focus mode of you can't, and it's the same problem with investing. You can't leave investing to a human. They just really struggle with the emotional side of that. And, and it's a very complex industry. So is technology going to nudge us back into balance? Is that the way? Um, well, so there's a few things to say about that. One is that for anybody who feels allergic to the idea that technology would be nudging or manipulating us, just notice that we live in an environment now where that we're constantly being nudged for negative reasons, for things that are for-profit reasons in the direction of to be more addicted, distracted, polarized, and misinformed. And Alex, what you were just saying about this sort of collective diminishing of, of human capacity, that that is what, why we use that phrase human downgrading, um, which was as we're upgrading the machines and the capacity, they profit from you know human attention that collectively downgrades the capacity of human attention, attention spans, capacity, flow, creativity, um, you know, social connection because we're profited, they're more profitable for each of us to be isolated by ourselves on a screen. Uh, if joint attention were profitable, where all of us as a group were on a screen together, um, that'd be a different world than you know profiting from each of us individually on a screen. Sorry, Nate, you were saying. I'm just trying to remember. I was just I was in the line of nudging, but nudging for good is kind of what you're saying is because we're so um, we can't compete with a trillion yeah. dollar organization. So is it possible that there's a field of technology that is um, called out as technology for good, B Corp type stuff, and the inner workings, the design. The, the, the code are all built to help us nudge back into balance and actually illuminate, hey, you're out of whack, Nate. You're way off the radar on where you should be. Pull back. Here's how you can do it. And, Technology for human upgrading. Yeah, human upgrading. Yeah, that, that, that's vaguely indirectly, uh, indirectly what we're pointing the phrase humane technology at supporting, which is to be in line with deepening um, human sovereignty and helping us express the higher angels of our nature instead of the lower angels of our nature. Um, and you might say, well, how could Facebook or TikTok ever be in the domain of nudging us for good? Because their business models 
are nudging us for attention and engagement. And so we have to immediately make a distinction between who could nudge us for good and who can't. So yes. anybody whose business model is attention, they can't do it. They're not going to be on our team. I think of it like a sidekick. You know, Yuval Harari, the author of Sapiens, and I have talked about this many times, but you know, technology that can be a sidekick to our deeper, higher values and our higher angels of our nature is possible, but it would have to come from the companies whose business models are not that, specifically Apple with the design of iOS and Android. And I'll give you, you know, a few concrete examples. Um, you know, you used to wake up and your phone just had all the notifications from last night right there on your phone, right? And um, uh, anytime you looked at it, anytime during the day or night, it would be the same interface. And they were saying, hey, that's actually kind of a problem because when people wake up in the morning, shouldn't we kind of have this more slowly waking up and getting back into your day kind of mode? So they introduced this sort of, you know, going to bed feature and then the kind of waking up. And there's sort of a, a little mini wall that kind of hides things before you say, okay, yes, I'm, I'm finally awake. I'm like dismissing the alarm. And then I like get past that wall. And then things kind of flow into your environment after that point. Um, and I think that's an example of trying to design things in a slightly more humane way where you're nudging people so that you don't just, every time you look at your phone at two, three in the morning, see all these like notifications that could be dramatic or, you know, wake your mind up and make it hard to go back to bed. They could say, Hey, we're going to nudge to hold those things back a little bit. And that's a good example, by the way, of the principle we we're talking about earlier of designing for just not just the planetary boundaries, but the human life boundaries. Like there is a kind of curvature to the human uh, experience, which is, you know, we sleep, we wake up, we are awake for certain hours, then we go to bed. And that direction of design of Apple kind of protecting like the curvature and ergonomics of living a life well lived, what we used to call time well spent. Um, that That is um, an example of, of how Apple can do that. And they could do many more things in that direction. Like imagine a calendar, right? When you open up your calendar right now on a Mac or on a, on iPhone, you know, it's very, it's very like archaic. It's kind of reminds you of these old like command line interfaces. You drag like an event and then there's a start time and an end time. And then I have free text field and I say what I want, but yeah. imagine the calendar was actually more like a life planner. And instead of, you know, clicking and typing in numbers and free text, I'm dragging in, Hey, I want some exercise time, or I want some social time, or I want some reading time. And it could be defined in a way about what does my life ideally look like in a life well lived. And you can imagine this more drag and drop like interface of like, Hey, you said you want more or, you know, one of your goals for the year is you said you wanted to do a wilderness training course. So you said yeah. you want to spend more time learning musical instruments or you wanted to learn languages and that can make, and then you can have applications in the app store be bidding to help fulfill some of those things. So it's like, oh, you want to learn language? Well, actually You're talking Duolingo about wants kind of to help a, you with an AI that. for time well spent that could look <laughs> at your life holistically and say, hey, I know where and how Alex needs to spend his time. And I also know how Alex intentionally would like to spend his time. And I'm going to solve for that. Yeah. And, and notice that again, Facebook or TikTok would never be in those roles, yeah. but Apple could be. And specifically yeah. the calendar is the interface that people make those cognitive. That's the, that's the decision-making interface where you're zooming out to that 50,000 foot view, or at least 5,000 foot view and getting a rough sense of like directionally where do I want my life to go. But you could imagine the economics changing too. So Apple app stores could run auctions for saying, well, which apps actually think that they could benefit for these stated intentions that people have for their lives. And so now you're kind of having things slot into the competition is for the right value as opposed to for the wrong value. Instead of competing for who gets to the top 10 on the app store page, you're competing for who can actually help people kind of get to where they want to go. I think of it like Uber and Lyft, right? That at the end of the day, that competition is for who can move me in space and time from like location A to location B 
for the cheapest price for this for the most immediate availability. But we need Uber and Lyft for kind of the navigation of our life values. How can our lives start to look more aligned with the lives that we want to live and have the auction and the competition be set in accordance with serving that alignment? Um, so that's, that's really, you're, and, and you're kind of already there since you're already there, Tristan, I'm just going to ask you this is, and I'm not trying to make this about technology, but is web three, does it potentially have that place where people can get control of their privacy again? You can have the, um, open internet as it was intended to be. It's not under the control of big tech in, and people can start to reinvent those kind of economies where you could literally create, you know, a, a blockchain token economy that rewards people for being more human and helping others be more human. And I know how ridiculous that sounds. Now you've just created another technology to help balance the scales, but is, does Web3 kind of have that promise? I think there's different aspects that you're, you're bringing up here because on the, so on the one hand, getting ourselves off of toxic business models in which the infinite aggregating of people's data to manipulate them for profit. So a, you know, treating you as the cust as the product and not the user, right. um, is, is one of the things that you can, you can flip there. But I, I will say that, um, you know, again, a lot of the things that got us here are just personalizing information for people based on whatever was most engaging. If you encode that in some decentralized product that still does that, whatever's most engaging, you scroll for an infinite feed, but now it's not owned by some big company. If it's still organized in that engagement for, for profit or engagement for personalization model, even if it's not necessarily fully funded that way, it's still going to have some of those problems. So I want to name that, right? Just the decentralization doesn't automatically open up the escape hatch and we're suddenly in some utopia where tech right. is actually strengthening democracy, helping us focus on our attention on things that enable us to make better decisions in open societies. Um, it doesn't do that. I think what you said about the incentives is a, is a more interesting area where how could the Web3 community be designing incentives that are aligning uh, you know, that which is shown to us with that which fulfills our intentions. Uh, as some people say, don't focus on our attention, but serve our intentions. Mm. Also our collective intentions, not just individuals. There's some nuances here because, you know, um, if people just personalize their news feeds for their intentions, that doesn't necessarily mean that a democracy works because everyone still has their own fragmented intentions. So we have to balance the collectivist with the personal. And I think people often say like, oh, we should just have a marketplace of newsfeed rankers so that now everybody has their own custom idea of how do they want to rank their news. That could be actually a disaster in a certain sense because now everyone gets their own even hyper-filtered right. Uh, reality, right? So we have to balance these values very carefully. Um, but I I think if anything, we need the Web3 community thinking about this in the right way so that they don't reinvent and make the same mistakes that got us here. No one at Facebook or Twitter thought that you know building their services was going to ruin democracy or over-fragment our reality and make it impossible to make decisions. We have to make sure the Web3 community doesn't make the same mistakes. Tristan, I know you got to drop in just a minute, and this has been fantastic. I'm wondering if we could just do a really quick lightning round of a few questions at sure. the end. Speed round. Fantastic. Okay. Um, Nate, why don't you kick us off? All right. What book are you reading right now that has you totally engrossed? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm often the, the dark bearer of, of dark news. I'm reading two books on how civil wars start and how to stop them. And in the U S cause I'm most concerned, honestly, about 
how social media can be basically a civil war for profit model that causes people to be paid in more likes and more followers, the more creatively they're able to shit post on their fellow countrymen and women. So can you run a democracy on civil war coin, you know, now on Coinbase? Like, no, we can't oh do that. God. So yeah. um, that's the book. It's actually a fantastic book by Barbara F. Walter. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. If you made Social Dilemma 2, what would it be about? Oh, that's a great question. I think the answer to the social dilemma is human connection. Mm. Uh, I really do. Um, when you see people come back from a weekend with their friends in some group experience where everyone's just like dropping in really deeply with each other and there's music and there's dancing and there's mm. just people really being with each other in a fulfilling way, you don't even feel people like trying to look or needing to look at their, at their phones or mm. You know, it also stabilizes away from the kind of ways that our, our newsfeed can kind of radicalize individuals by themselves in some isolated basement. The solution to that is more stabilizing conversations with regular people, seeing that regular people aren't in some crazy fantasy that's trying to make the world, you know, terrible or take over the country or whatever. So I, I honestly think human connection is the answer to that. And instead of a social dilemma to film, I'd love to see a social dilemma to you know, like almost like take the defense budget and make it the U.S. connection budget. Like, how do we just like deploy that kind of resources into mass human connection and cohesion? Because I think that's what we need the most. Yeah, that's a fantastic. 100%. How do you? How does a guy who's in some ways trying to save democracy in the world find a way to uh, be a human being again? The heaviness, the bigness of that macro scope. And, and how you've been awakening into the how macro this thing is. How does Tristan Harris go? Hold on, I just need a hamburger and some <laughs> water. <laughs> like, how do you unplug from that? Um, so if I'm really honest with you, I, I, I actually struggle with it because these are really heavy times, right? I, I, I feel a tremendous responsibility and we speak to folks across, you know, national security and former presidents and, you know, uh, parents and you know you hear the stories of kids who are committing suicide from this stuff it's it's a hard world to live in my personal outlets are uh, playing music i play piano uh and i play the accordion uh so uh that's been a really great thing and also um uh magic believe it or not i i uh, used to be a magician as a kid that's actually one of the ways that i stay sane is having very lightweight um non-heavy uh uh fun ways of of, of relating occasionally well, well, let's let's imagine that the metaverse was one way that you did that. As to <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. what does Tristan's avatar wear and like to do in the metaverse? <laughs> um, my T-shirt would say, "Find me not find me away from here and come back and find me in the real world." I probably would use my presence in the metaverse to direct people away from the metaverse. I love it. Makes perfect sense. Tristan, thank, thank you for this. Thank, thank you, you so much, much guys. It's so been much. phenomenal. We are grateful to have you here. And thank you for everything you're doing to make this world a better place. We need you. Wow. That was just incredible. What a brave, humble, and important leader. If you want to learn more about Tristan Harris and his work, do not go to Instagram, but go to his website, the Center for Humane Technology. The URL is humanetech.com. That's H-U-M-A-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. You can also find a ton of great resources there, as well as links to his podcast that he co-hosts with Aza Raskin, which is truly excellent. And that is called Your Undivided Attention. Or, of course, you can go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Last but not least, if you haven't seen The Social Dilemma, run, don't walk to your TV screen and check it out on Netflix. Just don't binge 50 shows after or Tristan will be really annoyed at you. Thank you for being with us today. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give us a rating. Five-star reviews are, of course, acceptable, and please also share this with your people at work and at home. The Disrupted Workforce was created to address the transformational change that's already begun and to help individuals and organizations grow in these dynamic times. We are excited to be on this journey with you, and we are here to help. See you next episode.